0: How would you like your God? There's quite a menu of religion out there now, and that's probably an underlying question behind a lot of it. How would you like your God? Religion is man's attempt to somehow appease God or please God or seize God and to bring him into our realm to make him reachable. So there are idols and temples and altars, all of these things to get this unreachable, unseeable divinity in our grasp where we can control him and downsize him and put him into our realm. People are more comfortable with a God you can see and touch and control. Isn't that ironic? Isn't it ironic that man searches to reduce God so we can get more from Him? That's what we're doing there. It's called religion. Lower God into our realm, put Him in a building, a box, a statue, pack Him up with you and take Him wherever you go. You know, the Bible tells us Exactly the opposite about God. That God purposely stepped into earth from heaven in order that he might bring us into his realm to live. That's what God has done. Ephesians is a classic example of a city where that was taking place. Open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesus is this whole city that in the first century was attempting to make the divine reachable. It was an important city, fourth largest city in the world around that time, about a quarter of a million people. It was responsible for their patron goddess. Remember her name? Artemis. Artemis of the Ephesians, they built her a temple the size of a football field, 60 feet tall, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That's an artist's conception of how it looked. That's how it looks now. And there was worship of many other gods, dozens of them, as well as occult kind of worship and magic and black arts and stuff like that. It was a city just filled with a variety of opportunities and immorality. Paul spent time there, more time there than any single city in his ministry time, and the church established a foothold there in Ephesus. Over time, these people who were trying to follow Christ needed help. And part of it came in the form of this letter that we're looking at starting this morning called Ephesians, probably a letter that was written to the region, but especially known to have been sent to Ephesus. It was sent there to help them keep a right perspective in a culture that was constantly trying to drag them the other direction from right perspective. If I just wondered as I was reading Ephesians, could we use that kind of thing in Rockford in the 21st century? Yeah, we could, couldn't we? Could we use a word from God to help us figure out how to have a right approach in life now? Well, of course. So with the no-brainer part out of the way, let's look in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that phrase heavenly places is the first time out of 5 times that Paul is going to use that in this letter it's a word that is really the word heavenlies only it's not used as an adverb it's or an adjective it's plural the heavenlies or as the esv puts it the heavenly places it's not just saying some place that is oh heavenly it just resembles heaven no it's a realm it is a place, the heavenlies, the spiritual dimension. We can't see it, but we're very involved in it, and so Paul uses it repeatedly like he does in verse 20. He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And I'm looking at that and thinking, you know, we should be interested in whatever this place is, this the heavenlies shouldn't we we should and we should here's three reasons number one because our standard is in the heavenlies that's where our standard is let me play something for you this morning got that I could just let that go for a while it would get annoying That is a perfect A440, 440 hertz A. If you've ever been to a musical or a concert where there's an orchestra, you'll hear all the instruments warming up, and then suddenly everybody kind of quits playing the chaos, and one instrument will play. Usually it's the principal violin or an oboe, and the note that that instrument will play is that note a 440 hertz A. Hmm... And that instrument plays, and then what happens? Everybody else in the orchestra begins to follow and to play alongside and adjust their pitch accordingly so that when they go to play music, they'll all be in tune. In other words, there's a standard. There's one instrument. There is one right when it comes to an orchestra playing together. Gaithersburg, Maryland, is the home of the National Institute of Standards and Technology. You're glad you came this morning to learn that, aren't you? Well, we used to call it the Bureau of Weights and Measures, the NIST. It's there to make sure that consumers and businesses are all using the same standards, the same measurements, so that you get a pound of ground beef and a gallon of gas and a yard of string and a 60-minute hour. Those are tangible, practical things, aren't they? They're called standards. They don't change. They never change. You know, before there was internet or social media, there were cultural standards, too. Those are a different story. Those keep changing. But there are some things about those cultural standards that go clear back to Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 1, Ephesians. Paul notes this to those people who are reading the letter. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, Paul's talking about the standards they used to follow. That's what it means to follow the world's standards. We become creatures of wrath. Chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds, They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Chapter 5, verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. Paul's talking about the standards that we follow. And that's where the world's standards will get us. Several years ago, in a small town, there was a clock in the courtyard of the town. And every morning, a man would ring the bells on the clock at the same time, 8 o'clock. To make sure he had the right time, every night, he'd listen to the local radio station and set his watch, and then the next morning, ring the bell sharply at 8 o'clock. One morning, he got up, everything in place, but his watch had stopped. And being unsure of the time, he didn't ring the bell that morning. He thought, well, I'd better get things straightened out. So he called the local radio station to ask the guy who was running it at the time what time it was. He said, well, I'm not sure because every morning I set the radio station clock by the bell going off, but nobody rang it this morning. And I think that is a pretty good picture of how cultural standards work, isn't it? I don't want to live like that. Isn't there something more reliable that I can count on? Isn't there a standard, the thing that's going to always be right and be the same? Isn't there one that I could use for life? I'm glad you asked that because yes, there is. Our standard, Paul tells us in this letter, our standard is in this place, the heavenlies. Chapter 3, verse 17. He prays this for them. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Chapter 4, verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Fullness of God. Grown up in every aspect, into Christ, imitators of God. When it comes down to everyday living, life in the heavenlies means that we've got a standard. It comes from God. Our lives should be filled with that standard. Turn on in chapter 5, starting in verse 22, and the standards for relationships in our homes is laid out, standards for husbands and for wives and for children and for fathers, even standards for slave owners and slaves. Everyone follows some set of standards. Everyone. Meaning of words has taken quite a beating these days. But, you know, there are two words that everyone still uses and everyone still understands what they mean. It's the words ought and should. Somewhere in everyone's mind, no matter who it is, they have an idea about what is right and wrong, about what you should and shouldn't do. At least about what you should and shouldn't do. Everyone And that's not just something that church people do. Everyone believes there are things you should and shouldn't do. Where do you get those ideas? Where should you get those ideas? If it's not from God, where is it? Been a lot of articles and studies lately addressing the effects of social media, specifically on teenagers... And the outcome of smartphones, probably not a good name for them, smartphones being the source of people's standards for life isn't good. It's not just teenagers. Nobody is immune to it. Most people are affected by this algorithm. An algorithm. You know what? I'll bet most people sitting here this morning couldn't even explain what an algorithm is let alone spell it. So why do we let an algorithm be the standard of our lives? Why let it control your choices? We've got a better standard. Amen? Followers of Jesus are people who just happen to accept that our ideas of right and wrong, our standards come from a heavenly source. We look up to where Jesus is is seated. We see our standard for life. That's not rocket science. Imitate God. Grow up in every way into him. Our standard is in this realm called the heavenlies. So I'm very interested in the heavenlies. How about you? Here's the second reason I think we should be very interested in the heavenlies, and that's because our citizenship is in the heavenlies. You know, There's horseback riding, and there's riding a horse. Those are two different things. Cowboys, cowboys, ride a horse. Horseback riding is for the uninitiated. It's like a shoe that says TGIF on it. Toes go in first, right? If you don't know, there it is. And in just, just in case you didn't know it, horseback riding, that's the part of the horse you ride on. They had to tell you. What other part of the horse are you going to ride? Horseback riding. That's the horse where they tell you how to get on the horse. And then the horse puts his head down and he gets on a trail that he's walked a thousand times before and does this. That's horseback riding, all right? No getting off the course, no running, no galloping, no snorting here, not today. Horseback riding. You know what, horses, you look at a horse. Horses aren't made to travel like that. That's not why God built horses. You're looking at an animal with eyes that can actually see nearly 360 degree, uh, degrees around them. Ears like periscopes that can rotate independently 180 degrees. An animal rippling with muscle and bone that weighs 1,000 pounds. that can run like crazy and stop and turn on a dime. That's what a horse is. Can you picture a posse of U.S. marshals? all jumping up on their horses and going, let's ride, to go get the train robbers. And then all the horses put their heads down and do this. <laughs> no way. God didn't make horses to do that, did he? I wonder if the Lord looks at people who are consumed by this world, and if they look to him like those horses' heads hung down and plodding. That's not what he made us to be. Chapter 1, verse 17. Paul says he prays that these people who are reading his letter would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they would see from the perspective of people who see not just life in this world, because we're not supposed to be living like trail horses, living small. What if the realm we live in is bigger What does it look like to have our citizenship in the heavenlies? I'm glad you asked that. If that's true, here are a few things that would be true. It would be true that no group of people is excluded from that citizenship, wouldn't it? This idea that the lives of all people matter, that isn't some new thing that just came along in the last ten years. Revelation describes a scene in heaven. John is looking at before God's throne, and he says he saw there, chapter 7, verse 9, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You know what that means? That means if you've got a problem with a particular group of people, you've got a problem in heaven. You're going to have a problem there. Paul was writing this letter to Gentiles. They had been, he said, excluded, cast out, considered not worth being saved. In fact, there were some Jewish rabbis in the first century who taught that the reason that God made the Gentiles was to provide firewood for hell. They were of a different race. They were of a different ancestry. They were from another country. Anybody here this morning from Jewish ancestry? Is there anyone here from Jewish Ancestry. Anybody? Okay. I I knew there might be, but look, that's one out of the whole crowd, right? That means that the rest of us are, guess what? Gentiles. I had bacon this morning. (laughs) Most people aren't from Jewish background. Most of us are Gentiles. So listen to these words that are directed to people whose citizenship is in the heavenlies chapter 2 verse 19 so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of god chapter 3 verse 6 the gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body partakers of the promise in christ jesus through the gospel where are you from never mind doesn't matter When you're in Christ, it doesn't matter where you are from. Your citizenship is no longer based on where you're from. When we're in Jesus, we're from the same country now. Guess what the name of it is? The heavenlies. The heavenly places. So no one is excluded. Isn't that great news? Here's something else that it means. It means unity. One of the great things about life together in the church is that every one of us is relying on the same grace of God to save us. We who are followers of Christ are people who have all gotten into the one lifeboat that will save us. And I guess that makes us together, doesn't it? Maybe you don't want to sit in the lifeboat with me. Well, we got some choices to make here. You want to throw me out? You want to get back in the water? The choice to follow Jesus is the choice for us to do that together. And living in the heavenlies means that we're also living together. We're not just around each other. We're not just tolerating each other. We're together. We're together in our thinking, in the direction that we're headed, and in our hope for the future. Chapter 4. Verse 3, he says we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We have all of these things together. Unity. Here's something else that comes as a a result of that, and that means that this life that we're living is short compared to our real home imagine with me for a moment you're in Colorado on a backpack trip you hike in seven miles, you set up camp everybody works together gets the campfire set up, puts a couple logs around it, you put up your pup tent you uh, get things going for the evening, got some food cooking you sit back and just enjoy the scenery but you notice that there's one person in your group who's doing things kind of differently He's gone off by himself, and he's working on a log cabin. Not only is he working on a log cabin, but then over the next couple of days, he begins to stockpile berries and water, and he catches enough trout for everybody to eat, but he just keeps catching them. And finally, somebody comes to this one guy and, you know, works up the nerve to say, hey, what's up with you? And he looks at him, and he says, well, these are good things. I don't want to leave these behind. Look at all of this stuff. What he's not thinking about is that in a couple of days, you're going to pack up and you're going to leave, all of you, and you're going to carry with you only what you can carry. You know what? He's not the only one who has forgotten that he's just visiting. Because when the time is up, and I'm not talking about this hour, I'm talking about when our time is up, We're going to pack up and leave this place, aren't we? And we're going to leave this stuff behind. And we won't be carrying anything with us as we go. So Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 15 Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Use your time well, Paul says use your time well because it's limited and we need to make the impact that we're able to make as we are here in this world now. We're living in tents here. And when the time for the time, uh, the trip is over, we're going to be headed out to the place where we really live, the place where we're going to live, our place in the heavenlies. Here's one more thing about life in the heavenlies that I think we need to Keep straight, and that means that our life struggle is in the heavenlies. You know, one of the great strategies of a fight or a war is diversion. Also of magic, which I'm not good at, but diversion. World War II, part of the success of Operation Overlord, that is the invasion of Normandy on D-Day, part of the success of that was called Operation Quicksilver. It featured the first U.S. Army group under the command of General George S. Patton. It was a ghost army. Quicksilver-built tent cities spread all over eastern England. Mess halls, hospitals, ammo dumps, fuel depots were built, and, and there were fake docks built, places and parks for trucks Tanks and jeeps were laid out. Columns of tanks showed up overnight in fields, all of them made out of rubber. They were big painted balloons. They even put fake tracks behind them. Other vehicles and guns as well, mostly made out of plywood and fabric, were all set up. A fake harbor was built, and from the air, the first army group appeared like it was supposed to, a million strong. But it was actually about a thousand artists, craftsmen, builders. Because of the threat it presented, Hitler's army diverted a whole lot of their numbers to a place farther in the north where they had to anticipate there might be an attack. And it's because of that that the invasion of Normandy was able to succeed, partly because the real fight was happening there, but they had created a distraction so that the enemy put his efforts somewhere else. That gives you an advantage in a fight. A rubber tank, how about that? Our biggest enemy has been creating distractions and diversions for thousands of years. You know, no sooner had Israel marched out of Egypt and left left slavery, then they became convinced that it would have been better to be back in slavery than to be hungry and wondering about where water and food was going to come from. For the history of the church, Satan has managed to get people off track and fighting the wrong battles. And if you and I want to keep from becoming another statistic, then we're going to have to understand where our real struggle is happening. Chapter 6, Verse 12, Paul says it. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies, the heavenly places. That's where our struggle is. Our real struggle is against spiritual powers. You ever watched a... Three year old boy trying to get a Twinkie open. Poor kid, and he's there working on that wrapper, and he's got the Twinkie, and all of a sudden he just bursts out in tears because here he is unable to get to the Twinkie, screaming over something that we know really isn't such a big deal. But if you're three years old and you're focused on that struggle, it is a big deal. Give me my Twinkie. That's what happens to grown-up people when we approach life's real struggles with the wrong perspective. I've watched a lot of people lately shaking their heads and heard a lot of people saying it out loud, what's going on? Have you said that? What's going on? What's happening in our cities? What's what's happening in workplaces? What's going on in schools? What's happening in politics? What's happening in our country? And Ephesians 6.12 is the answer. What's going on around us is a spiritual assault, brothers and sisters. The reason that wealthy people get behind evil agendas, it's why masses of people organize and create disorder. It reminded me of what James says in chapter 3, verse 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. There will be disorder. Disorder. In every vile practice. There is a place, there is an unseen spiritual realm, the heavenlies, and there is a nonstop struggle going on there right now. We get caught up in a lot of struggles, and there's a hazard that we'll forget what's behind all of it. Remember that our real struggle is a spiritual struggle. And then remember this, that our only real victory is going to come through spiritual means. That makes sense, doesn't it? That's why we need spiritual armor. Read on in chapter 6. We'll get to that later on. But read on in chapter 6. You can read about the spiritual armor. Whether we win or lose in this struggle isn't going to come down to material stuff. It's going to come down to the spiritual stuff. Remember the movie War Room produced, oh, eight years ago? War room, and the war room was what? It was a closet. A literal closet where a lady would go to spend time every day doing battle. She knew that the struggle would be won or lost while she fought in the war room. If our real struggle is a spiritual struggle, then it makes sense that to win, we have to use a spiritual approach, doesn't it? When Jesus came onto the scene, the people were expecting something else. They're expecting a military leader looking for the Messiah from God to come and to lead his people in conquest and get Rome off their backs. That's not how it works. Jesus came to win a struggle that was way bigger than that, far more important. So hear me you want your kids to do well you better be praying for them you want to find the right person to marry you better be using spiritual discernment you want to cope with getting older or getting sicker you better keep your situation in front of God you want to figure out who you're supposed to be in life you want to answer the question about your identity You'd better find your answers in the right places. Our real life struggle is in the heavenlies. So the weapons of our war are there too. I can't look inside anyone here this morning and see exactly what's going on inside of you, but I can tell you this, that right now, Inside your heart of hearts, there is a battle raging, whether you want it there or not. Because right now, Satan is using his deceit and his lies to try to convince you not to accept God's truth. Right now, he is trying to convince you to remain unconvinced, unaffected, unchanged, unmoved, unconcerned about what really matters. And you could go on from here like that. You could do that. Or you could make the choice today to live a life that's in the heavenlies, to recognize that's where we're at and where God intends for us to be, that our standard will come from there, that our struggle will be fought there, and you can win. In just a moment here, I'm going to ask you to, to look deep inside at that struggle and to win and to come out of here today with a decision, a decision to be changed, affected, moved, somehow different because you've looked at what God has had to say. Maybe that means accepting him as Lord in your life today to make the step from life in this world to life in where he wants you to be, the heavenlies. If you're ready to make that choice, we want to help you with that today. Even if you're online and uh, joining us here that way, you can contact us. You can do that right now, cccrockford.org connect. Please make a connection. Let us sit down with you, talk to you from God's word about what it means to be his follower. Let's stand up together. And please pray with me. Father, we don't speak into empty air. We speak to the one who reigns supreme. We speak as your people, seen by you, known by you, and recognize that today uh, we stand responsible to you. Father, we've looked at your word. We've just looked at a bit of what it has to say, how our lives should be and can be different because they're lived in a completely different realm than just this world. Oh God, help us please not to be like animals that aren't living out what we're made to do, but rather as people made in the image of God, living life that reflects our knowledge of that. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the lifeboat Uh, Father, help us together uh, to live this life that will honor you. And right now, uh, every one of us, Father, help us please to, to win in the struggle as Satan would work to suppress your truth, to divert us from paying attention to what matters. We want your spirit to have reign in our thinking, in our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.